today I'm going to be reading Romans 15, 22 through 29. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this, I have delivered to them what has been collected. I will leave for Spain by the way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Thank you, Jasmine. Church, if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verses 22 through 29. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. And I'm probably going to be emotional the next couple of months. I mean, we only have a couple months left in Romans, so this is getting pretty nostalgic. Um, I'm grateful for the time that the Lord has given us in this book. Um, And what we're given today is this wonderful picture It's a window into a community uh, which is almost alien to our contemporary uh, spiritual environment and climate and world. We're going to see different churches not only getting along, but they are going to be crossing economic and ethnic and cultural divides to take care of each other. And I think this picture should compel us to ask how and why. How are they able to... um, overcome these barriers, which seem almost impossible for us to traverse today, and why would they do it? Why would they be motivated to seek unity and reject isolation and segregation when in many respects, keeping to yourself is often a lot easier than taking on the burdens of somebody else? And so we'll ask how and why. Because you see, perhaps more than ever, the Christian church is severely divided, right? I I hope this is not news to you if we merely turn on the news or open up to a social media feed, we see that the rich are regularly unwilling to care for the poor. Republicans and Democrats seem increasingly unable to disentangle politics from their spiritual allegiance, and those in power seem blind, numb, or just completely dispassionate toward the effects of their power over the vulnerable. This happens within God's own church. We might even come and sing songs about, you know, the poor and the powerless or our love for God, our worship for Jesus, about heaven invading all of the far reaches of this world. But when we're really honest, when we look at ourselves as a church, not only a church in the square, but as a church in the United States, in Western culture, it seems often that our deepest affections are bound up in the exact same things, the common gods of our day, consumerism, materialism, and individualism. It's the same thing. In their book, The Tangible Kingdom, Hugh Halter and Matt Smay see these three idols as barriers that prevent church communities from experiencing the flourishing, the holiness, uh, flourishing that God desires and the holiness that he desires from his people. 
these three barriers. Halter and Smith see church as life with God, life with each other, life with those around us, sort of understanding what they call communion, community, and mission, all of those things coming together. And in order to enjoy this type of community, we have to deal with the powers of consumerism. We have to address the hurt that materialism causes, and we have to understand the nature of individualism. When we do that, when we overcome these barriers, um, we capture, I think, what Paul is putting on the page here for us today this so-called tangible kingdom, or what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called the beloved community. That's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about how and why we should become a people unburdened by consumerism, materialism, and individualism. What's it look like, in other words, to become a church that Paul says, as he comes into Rome, in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. In a word, I think this brand of community is deeply grounded in generosity. This is what Paul's passage is centered on. So here's how we'll organize our time together. We'll look at the conditions of generosity, we'll look at the nature of generosity, and then the blessing of generosity. So the conditions, the nature, and the blessing. Let's pray. Father, uh, left to ourselves, this is a few verses, a few lines about some guy and his travel plans in the ancient world. That's all we can see. But when your spirit shines brightly through your word, we are changed by it. And the powers of this world and the forms that we've just described lose their voracious grip on our souls, and we need that. If not individually, then certainly corporately, as a neighborhood, as a city, country, and world. And so, God, would you speak to us, your children? your sons and your daughters, we, brothers and sisters, so that we can become the family that you're calling us to be, that you're shaping us by your gospel to become, so that more and more people would know the truth and the beauty of Jesus and his great good news, that he is Lord and that earth is coming to heaven, or rather that heaven is coming to earth. And so we pray, Father, that you would open our eyes, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said, amen. So the second half of Romans 15 is about Paul's travel plans. So let's get a little bit of context. What's he, what's he talking about and why is he giving his travel plans? Well, Paul is writing Romans uh, from an ancient city called Corinth, and that's in Greece. And he's never been to Rome before. In fact, the Roman movement of Christianity was founded and given momentum by, by someone else. But Paul has always wanted to go to Rome. If you remember way back in the very beginning of his letter, Paul told the Roman readers in verse 11 of chapter 1, For I long to see you, that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That word longing is really affectionate. It's intimate. And so even though Paul has not met these folks, he loves them deeply. He has an affinity for them. He has heard of their reputation of faith, and he is excited. He is thankful. He loves them. And so he wants to be with them to encourage them and help them continue to build strong churches and strong communities in this urban context that they call home. Paul then reiterates his affection for his brothers and sisters here again in chapter 15 as he begins to wind down this letter. So he, in many respects, is ending where he began with his love for the people of Rome. That's where we pick up today. Look at Romans 15, verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, Paul says, 
But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. So because of Paul's work along the eastern coastline of the Mediterranean Sea, specifically in these urban centers filled with non-Jewish people, he hasn't been able to get to Rome yet. See, throughout Paul's writings, whether it's here in Romans or elsewhere, it's clear that his ministry, the substance of his focus is on two things. First, he's focused on cities, urban context, urban environments. And secondly, he's focused on new works within the Gentiles or within Gentile communities. That is the nations, every other nationality, ethnicity, group of people outside of the Jewish context. Now, this ought to be really encouraging to us and really familiar to you and I. See, God's called each of us, whether you know it or not, or realize you were accepting the call or not, you were a part of a new work in an urban environment to predominantly non-Jewish people. You're picking up what Paul's throwing down for us. This is our focus as well. This is where we've made our home. We're a diverse people in a dynamic urban center. Chicago is not that far removed from Rome or Corinth. Unlike Paul, This is where, then, you and I are called to live and move and have our being. This is our focus. Now, Rome was a city, and Rome was certainly filled with diverse people, but the gospel wasn't new there. So it hasn't been Paul's top priority to get to Rome and to establish the church because it already existed there. But what Paul is saying now in verses 22 through 24 is that having established gospel churches in these major city centers throughout the region of eastern Mediterranean coastline, he's making plans now to finally go to Rome. But of course, he's doing other things along the way and he's going somewhere else. So he's saying, I'm going to pass through Rome on my way to Spain No doubt to reach more non-Jewish people in another major city, perhaps Madrid, right, to start new churches there. So he's planning on stopping in Rome to both, he says, enjoy the company of his brothers and sisters, but also to ask for some help. After all, travel in the ancient world was expensive, it was dangerous, it was physically challenging, so he was going to need their help if he was going to make it to Spain. So he's like, I can't wait to see you, get your checkbooks ready, I'm going to need your help, (laughs) right? I'm going to pass along there, can't wait to enjoy some fellowship, some good barbecue together, and then I'm going to make my way up to Spain. But here's where things get a bit odd. See, Greece is just a short trip across the Adriatic Sea to Italy. And when he's writing from Corinth, then he's not far from visiting those whom he says, I've longed to be with you, I can't for many years, I couldn't wait to meet you. And so it would make perfect sense if the next thing that Paul said was, see you soon, I'm nearly there, I'll be right there, get ready, here I come. But he doesn't. He says he's going to go somewhere else first. Look what Paul says is his next plan before he visits Rome. Verse 25 and 26. At present, however... I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Okay, so instead of going to Rome, where he desperately longed to go, Paul is going to Jerusalem. Now, this is odd for two reasons. First, it's odd because demographically, Jerusalem is the exact opposite of Paul's calling that he has just described, right? To be sure, it's in a major city, but it's the very origin of the gospel proclamation, and it's highly Jewish. 
It's not new. It is the exact opposite of everything Paul says that he's about. Secondly, the other reason it's odd is because geographically, Jerusalem is on the complete opposite side of the Mediterranean Sea. It will take him far away from Rome, increasing his travel by months and a lot of peril and danger. So we should ask why. Paul, you were almost there. (laughs) You were almost to the place that you've been writing about that you desire to be a part of. Why does he plan to go to Jerusalem first? Now, Before we figure that out or answer that question, I think we do well to keep in mind how important Romans is. According to scholar N.T. Wright, the book of Romans, he says, is one of the most ecstatic and exhilarating, dense and difficult, intellectually and spiritually challenging and rewarding writings from any period of church history and some might argue from anybody else's history as well. So if you feel tired after four years of understanding and navigating this text, you're in good company. This is a lot. This is a lot to take in. If you're like, maybe we could spend another four years, you'd probably be in the minority in our church, but it would make perfect sense. There's nothing like Romans. And Paul's not an idiot. Can you imagine as he winds down his letter, he's like, I crushed it. This is amazing, (laughs) right? He's like going back in the edits with his, his scribe going, oh, that was a good line. That was a good line. Oh, change that, right? Let's make sure. Can you imagine? He must be overwhelmed. Like, we nailed it. He knows that he has just been used by God to produce what many will describe as the jewel of the New Testament. In fact, 16th century German theologian and monk Martin Luther said that the book of Romans is the chief part of the New Testament, and it is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of his soul. Not only did Luther memorize Romans, but he took two years without stop to lecture from the letter from 1515 on into 1516. Both John Calvin, an influential French theologian, and Wyndham Tyndale, who was essentially the father of the English translation of the Bible, claimed that to know the book of Romans well was to shed light in and through the entire rest of the Bible. There's nothing quite like Romans. I hope you've sensed that and experienced that, not simply in our time on Sundays, but as your group has navigated this letter for the past number of years, the letter Paul is nearly done writing is one of the most precious and powerful articulations of the good news of Jesus ever heard. Yet, like many of Paul's letters, he's not going to deliver it himself. Instead, he is going to finish this letter and give it to a woman named Phoebe, who is a deacon at the church in Corinth where Paul is writing, She personally then will carry the letter west to Rome while Paul goes east to Jerusalem. Now, that should, the the immensity of this letter should make it very clear that he must have incredibly important business in Jerusalem. So why? Why isn't he going to Rome now when he is so close? Why isn't he going to deliver this great letter himself? Look again at verse 25 and 26. He's going to Jerusalem to deliver aid to the poor in the church in Jerusalem. From churches in Macedonia and Achaia. See it? It's there twice in two verses. He's delivering money. Instead of delivering Romans, he's making a bank transfer from one church to another. Now, this is certainly odd for us in the 21st century when transferring money is so easy. 
from what we understand, Egypt was the only place that had a really sophisticated bank system that could make these kinds of transfer without the arduous travel personally that Paul was about to go on. So in this particular part of the world, if one church from Greece wanted to get money to Jerusalem, it would need to be delivered by those they really trusted, they really loved, and who were really prepared for such a journey. Now, thinking about all of that, doesn't this seem just a little bit beneath Paul? Right? I mean, I read this and just go, surely you must have other work to do. You could have written another letter. Right? We could have had a letter to Chicago and deliver this. This seems a bit off track. He's a preacher, not a banker. Yet Paul sees in this gift from Macedonia and Achaia, he sees in that gift the very substance of his gospel ministry. You see, through this gift, we see these three barriers broken down. The breaking of these barriers give this gift such vibrant gospel implications that in Paul's mind, it is more important to deliver this money than to deliver Romans himself. Think about that. Why could we say that? How could Paul make this decision? Well, again, I think it breaks down these three barriers. First, the gift broke down the barrier of consumerism. You know, giving is a great counterpoint to consumption. When we give our money away, consumerism is the belief that we become by taking, collecting, and accumulating. It's not really about the stuff. That's materialism. It's rather about our ceaseless appetite to consume more things. You guys, I had some clothes delivered this week. Do you know what I did the next second? I looked at another store. What is that? That's consumerism. As soon as you get something new, it wakes something up in you. I can collect more stuff. Right? I actually really liked what came in the mail. I wasn't going to send it back. I wasn't replacing it. You see, let let me be clear in this confession. I wanted more. I didn't want another. I wanted more. See, we see this barrier broken down in the life of Christ, don't we? Instead of remaining in the hollowed halls of heaven, the book of Philippians tells us that Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held onto, but rather what did he do? He emptied himself. This is a word for us who are addicted to consuming things. Jesus empties himself. Jesus foregoes eternally grasping or holding on to divine commodities and powers and luxuries, and instead he emptied himself by generously giving of himself to humanity for the glory of his Father. Jesus could do this because he knows something so vitally important, that he is more than what he consumes. See, Jesus understood he could empty himself and still be himself. Halter and Smay explain consumerism is based on the belief that I can't help others until I help myself. It's the exact opposite of the gospel. See, Jesus shows us that he is not helping himself in order to eternally help us. Are you with me, church? And this generosity of Macedonia and Achaia then perfectly captures this principle. There were a pair of wealthy churches in vibrant Grecian cities. And instead of continuing to take and collect and accumulate and consume, they hear that their brothers and sisters on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea have a need, and they were like, God in Christ gave to us, therefore we will give to them. Giving and generosity breaks the barrier of consumerism. Secondly, the gift also broke the barrier of materialism. Giving is also a counterpoint to materialism. Materialism is the belief that we become through tasting, touching, seeing, hearing, smelling. We activate the senses because that's when we truly feel alive. 
But in Christ, we learn to see ourselves in the fullness of God's creative design. See, we're not just merely physical beings. In the ancient Jewish consciousness, being fully human was about learning what Deuteronomy chapter 6 taught, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And Jesus adds to this mind in his recollection of the text in Matthew 22. Being human is very much about your bodies, very much about your bodies, but it is also about your heart, your passions, and your affections. It's also about your mind, your thoughts. It's also about your souls, your spirit. Therefore, when we are entangled with materialism, what we are really doing is minimizing our nature to the physical and minimizing the nature of others' humanity merely to the physical, belittling our design to the latest pair of shoes, bacon burger, jeans, or iPhone, believing that that is the thing that will satisfy, gratify, and make me whole. We fail to nurture our hearts, our minds, our souls in the fullness and wholeness of how they've been created. Halter and Smey explain, whereas consumerism holds some aspect of entitlement, materialism simply wants more stuff. More stuff. So when Macedonia and Achaia sent money through Paul and his team, they were saying people matter more than stuff. Thirdly, the gift also broke the barrier of individualism, and this may be the hardest one of all to break, at least for our context in our day. See, giving is a great counterpoint to individualism as well. Individualism is a way of understanding self, our identity, in isolation without the need of other people, whether it be family, friends, or community. The reason this is so hard is because we have dignified the idea of defining ourselves away from people and then coming back to the community and saying, here's who I am and you need to respect that. It's the complete opposite of the gospel narrative. So you see, not only had Christians in Macedonia and Achaia learned to construct a communal identity, but the work of Christ was so central to their self-concept. You see, their personal identity was so wrapped up in their brothers and sisters that when they heard Christians had a need from another city, another culture, another place, all the way across the Mediterranean, they heard it as their need. That, that's our people. That, that's my need. They must have read Paul's first letter to the Corinthians which came out just a couple years before Romans. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This means if you hurt, so do I. If your life's not good, in some respects, mine's not either. When you rejoice, I'm happy. That's good news for me. Right? Culturally speaking, or in, perhaps even in our fallenness, when something good happens to my neighbor, I get jealous. Why'd it happen to her and not me? Right? Why'd that person get the promotion and not me? I worked harder than them. To be sure, we must be mindful of injustice. But as followers of Jesus, I am so wrapped up and known within the people of God that when you suffer, I suffer. When I suffer, you suffer. And the same is true when we rejoice. This was particularly potent when we consider that these two Grecian churches sending money were sending money to Hebrew churches. They were crossing ethnic lines. Not only so, these were rich Christians sending money to poor Christians. These were progressive or modern Christians sending money to conservative moralists in another town, in another place, in another context. So when we talk about reconciliation, we're always talking about it in two ways. 
Because of Jesus, we have been reconciled, reunited, brought back together again with our Heavenly Father. But we've also been reconciled to each other. We've also been, and, and you don't get to choose, by the way. You can't go, I want the reconciliation just with my Heavenly Father. I don't know about all these other humans, right? We're really good at choosing one over the other. You don't get to choose. Because both aspects of reconciliation come through the same cross. Are you with me? That if you want to be reconciled with your Father, you must be reconciled with your brothers and sisters, with humanity. See, we call this vertical and horizontal reconciliation. Vertical between us individually and God, horizontally with one another. And Paul has spilt so much ink, y'all, on this horizontal aspect throughout Romans. That diverse peoples have been made one in Christ. Mother Teresa once said, if we have no peace, it is because we have forgotten that we belong to each other. This Greek gift then, typifies the gospel message that Paul had been writing about precisely because it was coming from Gentiles to their Jewish brothers and sisters. Do you see how much power Paul saw in this gift? This is why Paul chose to deliver this gift rather than the precious book of Romans. This gift represents everything he's been talking about. Church, did you know that a single gift could bear such meaning and power and veracity? Paul now makes it plain. Look at verse 27. For they, that's the Macedonians and the Acacian Christians, were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owed it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessing, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessing. You see, this gift embodied this gospel reality that these separate communities had experienced together. Paul understood this gift, this financial gift, as a material blessing, as a response or overflow of another gift that they had received. The Jewish people had welcomed Gentiles into this Christian faith. Therefore, it only makes sense that the Gentiles would reciprocate or respond to their brothers and sisters, their Jewish brothers and sisters, like they were family, because they are. See, gospel generosity breaks down barriers. Gospel generosity crushes consumerism, materialism, and individualism. Gospel generosity invites us to become a people. God is calling us to be a tangible kingdom, a beloved community. This is what he is doing in our church right now. As we've been thinking about the future, sending out a feasibility survey, talking about it in groups, people are thinking about money. Some of you are like, I didn't even know I was supposed to give money to the church. Some of you realize I've been tipping Jesus for 20 years. I didn't know it was supposed to be sacrificial. Some of us realize that we've been worshiping money and didn't even know it. God is doing a work through generosity in this church right now that summarizes this gift in Macedonia and Acacia. It looks just like it. I think this is why I got so excited about reading about Paul's travel plans this week. That doesn't make any sense. I was jacked up to hear that he was going to do this. Why? Because this is what God is doing in us. Can you even imagine now, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, a generation away, they're going to tell a story about church in the square back in 2022, 2023, started having this conversation about no longer holding on to money, but rather giving it away rather demonstrating that the gospel has been so at work in us, it starts showing up in material blessings. See, the material blessing is really telling a story about the spiritual blessing. Do you hear what Paul's saying? Something's going on in my heart. Therefore, I don't have to hold on to this money. I don't have to hold on to this stuff. I'm going to give it away. So the conditions of generosity 
are seen in Paul's choice to deliver this money rather than to deliver the letter. The nature of generosity breaks down the walls of consumerism, materialism, and individualism. And all of this leads Paul to demonstrate to his readers the blessing of generosity. Namely, that generosity is generative. In other words, generosity has this effect on everyone who hears and participates with the gift. Look how Paul explains this experience, how it will have an effect on him. Look at verse 28 and 29. When therefore I have completed this, that is delivered this money, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So he says after bringing this money to Jerusalem, he's going to head back to Spain through Rome. But notice, he will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Now what's that mean? Again, Paul has been longing to be with the Roman Christians since the very beginning of this letter. He wants to foster relationship with them. Back at the start, Paul continued, or rather started to say that he wanted to visit them, what? To be mutually encouraged, Romans 1 verse 12 says, by each other's faith, by yours and mine. So having delivered the money, seeing the improvement and the encouragement of the poor in Jerusalem, Paul will be able to breathe a sigh of relief and out of worship settle into his experience with his friends and celebration and love with his brothers and sisters in Rome. This is the blessing of generosity. It blesses everyone. Paul wasn't going to benefit from this personally. He was just going to be a witness He was just going to watch the effect of this gift. And he says, that's going to fill me up so much that when I come to you, by the way, Rome, and you had nothing to do with this gift. This was about two churches in Greece blessing a church in Israel. You're not going to have anything to do with it. It's going to bless you too. This is the blessing. It blesses everybody. We believe a number of lies about giving, don't we? Namely, that when we give our money away, we will only lose. We will not receive. We count the costs of what this will cost us, of how this will bring on more hardship to us. You see, we often believe that about giving, that we will lose money, stuff, time, resources, whatever it might be. But what gospel generosity teaches us is that giving always fills us up. Giving always fills us up. Gospel generosity always returns infinitely more than it requires. This is Jesus' point when Peter, sweet Peter, bless his heart, Peter is complaining to Jesus as sort of a representative. He always elected himself as the representative of the disciples' gripes. He's like, yo, Jesus, have we not like left a ton of things to follow you? you? Do you know how much we've given up? Here's how Jesus responds, Mark chapter 10. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Gospel generosity turns the world on its ear. That where we think about counting the cost is all that we will leave behind. Jesus says, don't forget, don't neglect to understand the blessings that you will receive. Some of you simply by coming to the city knew what you were leaving behind in your particular hometown. And now you sit with brothers and sisters and know their story and own one another's discipleship, spiritual formation in ways that you never thought you would. Some of you are in a kind of community now that you thought would never be replicated from your college years. You thought that was the 
absolute climax of experience, and now the Lord is taking you on a new journey that you could never have imagined. How much more, then, will these spiritual blessings as we continue to follow Him come to fullness when we see consumerism, materialism, and individualism all fall down around us? See, the thing about those things is that they all promise us something, don't they? These promise that we won't be forgotten if we keep ourselves first. That's individualism. Everybody else is going to forget you, so you don't forget you. Watch out for yourself. They promise we'll have more than enough as long as we keep holding on tightly to our things. They promise that we won't be consumed by this world as long as we keep up consuming and continuing to take in. Yet each of these always, each of these idols, each of these powers, church, they always require more than they return. Why? Because they never love you back. What you consume will ultimately consume you. The material things we collect will soon belittle your personhood to the merely physical. And individualism will always lead you into loneliness. This is why an individualistic culture like our own is receiving a warning from the Surgeon General that the epidemic of loneliness is killing Americans. This is verifiable. This is not just spiritual data. They always require more than they return. These idols always destroy And so one of the primary ways that we as a community cultivate true community and life together is that we learn to break down these barriers together through generosity that boasts the good news of Jesus. Generosity that crosses lines of economics, ethnicity, and culture. Generosity that reflects the cosmic example you and I are given on the cross and the power wielded for us in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So church, my brothers, my sisters, What resources has the Lord entrusted to you? What has he given you? What resources does your neighbor need? What pain are you able to help alleviate? What burden are you able to help carry? What gift are you able to give? You see, when we give like God in Christ has given to us, we too are able to show up in what Paul says, the fullness of the blessing of Christ. We never show up with less through generosity. We always show up with more. We too, then, I think, can learn to live lives that are way more valuable than the book of Romans, that are our own stories to tell of God's grace and his power and his work among us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you help us? Like our Savior Jesus, we desire to release resources, money, luxuries, comforts, but it's hard. Even as I speak, I'm wrestling with the implications of this. What does it mean to forego things that I think will bring me joy for things that your word says are truly worth rejoicing in? Thank you for the example of our brothers and sisters in Macedonia and Achaia and in Jerusalem. Thank you for the ways that they demonstrate to us what true generosity looks like, not just to other churches, but to the least and the last and the lost in our city and our world. So by your Spirit, would you apply this word to our daily lives? By your Spirit, would you bring that person's name to mind? By your Spirit, would you remind us of that community, that person, 
that family, that church that is in need, and help us to be a people who respond because God in Christ has not only demonstrated this kind of generosity to us, but the power of that gift has changed us from the inside out, knowing that we will always receive more from you than we could ever give. So we love you, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.